out below us. What am I missing out here? I got distracted by skiing and climbing and girls and Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, presented by TAS Gazex, with additional support from Black Diamond Equipment. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I saw last week that Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows is investing $4 million into their snow safety program. It's pretty exciting stuff. That's going to include uh, A-Star B3 will be on site for a portion of the winter to conduct explosives work from the helicopter and I'm sure do reconnaissance work, Um, as well as 13 new Gazex installations, um, which is going to nearly triple the amount that they have installed as of now. That's pretty exciting. Also, another uh, four Avalanchers. So, man, they got some some tools to work with for this next next winter. I'm not sure if the the Gazex will be installed by this winter, but uh, it sounds like that's the overall plan. Um, Nice job, TAS Gazex, big sponsor of the show. Thanks for your support. This is the time of year I start looking through my backcountry ski kit. I always find that I'm missing something. There's always something that is lost or broken from last season. If you're in the same boat as me, head on over to Black Diamond's website. They've got you covered from beacon shovel probe combos to jet force airbag packs to skis and bindings. Check them out. Go get that stuff. I'll be heading out on a little fall tour here in the next couple of weeks. Pretty excited to come through the Wasatch and Tetons to conduct some interviews with some great guests. Make sure to follow us on Facebook to see the lineup of those guests. Uh, There's some names you're sure to recognize. I'd like to incorporate some listener questions to these interviews where I can. So if you have a question you'd like like me to ask one of our guests, shoot me an email or Facebook me the question and I'll be sure to try to work it in. Within the last week here, there have been some emails floating around between ARI and the American Avalanche Association regarding pro courses being offered uh, for this upcoming season. Make sure to uh, stay tuned after our feature presentation with Joe Stock. We'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that and hear from ARI's Executive Director, Richard Bothwell. Um, so stay tuned after the interview with Joe Stock to find out a little bit more about that. And without further ado, Joe Stock. I'd like to welcome Joe Stock to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome to the show, Joe. Oh, it's great to be here, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Joe's a, uh, an IFMGA guide an avalanche educator, and a writer from Anchorage, Alaska. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm sure there's much more to you than just that, Joe, but... Uh, <laughs> well, typical typical guide career kind of piecing it together with various things. Yeah, you want to just t- tell us a little bit about your background as a avalanche educator and a guide and, and anything, any other projects that you're working on currently? Okay, sure. Yeah, I've uh, I kind of grew up uh in a science household. My parents were both uh professors, science professors and that's kind of the trajectory I headed into um after high school. I was really interested in glaciers and then avalanches because I found out they move faster. 
So I did undergraduate and I went to graduate school for watershed science with a lot of snow classes in there and tried out the watershed hydrology career and guided guiding during the summer. But then kind of realized uh, what I do best is guiding. I really like being with people in the mountains and showing people a good time. So that's what I've been tending towards more recently. And avalanche education, um, yeah, I've been interested in avalanches ever since I first heard about them. I think when I was like in sixth grade is when I did my first avalanche project and made a poster um, had like slope angle on there and, you know, a route you can take. I think it was basically copying from like Freedom of the Hills or something like that. But my interest in avalanches is maintained since then and kind of did some study in it with uh, Carl Berkland in Bozeman um, during my undergraduate. And then uh, during graduate school, I did some study also. Um, but then found I... What I enjoyed most was uh, using my avalanche education while guiding, but then also teaching avalanche classes. I really like teaching avalanche classes because uh, it just seems like you're trying to distill things down to the basics and explain these difficult concepts to people, which means simplifying things, and I really like that. And it's working with the other instructors. It's almost like a competition to see who can say things the in the most simple manner, and I really like that. It seems to really uh, level the playing field a lot amongst avalanche professionals. Sure, Joe. Did you uh, did I read on your website that you did some schooling in New Zealand? Yeah, I went to. I started school in Bozeman, Montana, and that's where I did that internship with Carl Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I went for to school there for three semesters and uh, did really well my first semester. Second semester, I did not so good. And then third semester, I did terrible because I was, like, really focusing on <laughs> I got distracted by skiing and climbing and girls and stuff like that. So That's easy to do. I went to school and <laughs> went to, uh, skiing or climbing in New Zealand. Uh, and and uh, went to school in New Zealand there in geology, and they have a it's a British program, so it's only three year degree, mm-hmm. and it's entirely in geology. So every class was geology, and a lot of field trips, and the mountains were at a safe distance from the university, so I couldn't just uh, get distracted and go off to the mountains. You got that safe buffer and, there. Yeah, safe buffer. The mountains were like six hours away, which was perfect. So it kind of allowed me to stay in the city of Christchurch and stay focused. Okay. And and so most of your avalanche education, when you're teaching courses, you you work for a variety of folks, I understand, but uh, primarily in the most recent past, the Alaska Avalanche School? Yeah, I've been working for the Alaska Avalanche School more and more every year for about 10 years now. Yeah, and it's one of the the few non-airy programs in the United States, and they were started by uh, Jill Fredson and Doug Fesler back in the '80s, and they've uh, you know kind of really set the stage for a lot of avalanche education, you know, like the stuff that's included in their book Snow Sense, and. And kind of right when I came on is when Jill and Doug were finished with the last Avalanche School. So um, there was a lot of uh, room for updating. So it's been a really fun time with the last Avalanche School. And and they're going to be a provider for some pro courses this year, correct? Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be uh, starting to jump into the pro courses with pro bridge courses or pro uh Pro one bridge courses and then a uh, a full pro one course and then possibly a pro two course. They often do the level in the past level three is with um, the American Avalanche Institute. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you know, Joe, we met just so listeners know we met last year at a 
in the Tetons at, in Jackson at the American Avalanche Association's Pro Trainer Workshop, and I got to spend some time with you out in snow pits and stuff. And and uh, yeah. and so it was great to meet you then, and it's really good to connect with you back on the show here. Um, and and so after that, I started looking at your website and started reading your blogs, and I really enjoyed um, some of the stuff that you're writing about with concerns to avalanche education, um, as well as lessons learned. And we'll we'll dive into some more of this uh, further on in the show. But what I realized by checking out your website is how much writing you do. Um, do you want to talk oh, a little yeah, bit yeah, about always, some of your writing? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I've always been interested in writing. Well, since college, started you know going on these alpine climbing trips, and you know alpine climbing kind of is a kind of an intense thing which I don't really do anymore because it's so intense, but, <laughs> you know, being in my early twenties and, um, going on these climbing trips and having these really intense experiences, you want to kind of, you know, share these experiences and digest them a little bit more. So I started writing about those and that was a start of like freelance writing for various magazines for like 15 years up until 2008 when, um, I got five articles killed in one year. We killed means, they say they're going to take the article, you write the article, and then they say, whoa, we can't take it. So you've kind of basically wasted your time. Right. So, that, so, <laughs> um, so that was in 2008. Um, so since then, I've kind of redirected my interest in writing with like blogging and writing for some online resources. And, and then also a, a guidebook for South Central Alaska skiing. So I just did a second edition of that last year. So that's been a lot of work and a lot of fun and really rewarding. And I'm thinking about another writing project, another book now, maybe. Uh huh. And so, so that ski guide book is called the Alaska factor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, the second one is the Alaska factor <laughs> too. And it, it just includes uh South central Alaska. Okay. Um, basically stuff around Anchorage, like the Western Chugach, the Kenai mountains, uh, some of the Alaska range, Talkeetna mountains. And there's a lot of skiing around South central Alaska. You know, my, my biased opinion, I think it's the best uh, skiing in the world. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. And it looks like you have, you have many hardy ski traverses under your belt in that region. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's a lot of skiing right from Anchorage. I mean, they say Anchorage is just 15 minutes from Alaska. So like one of the ski trips, what my wife drove was, uh, Andrew Wexler and I up to the edge of town right above Anchorage and, and 18 days later we skied right into Valdez. Wow. So that's the kind of uh, trips you can go on right from Anchorage. Is it, that's got to be under mountains and never just under 200 miles or so. Oh, maybe something like that. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Wow. Took a while. I mean, there's, there's a lot of mountains up there. Yeah. Have you gotten up there skiing much? Uh, I've just done one trip outside of Haines, just flew into a glacier. And, oh, okay. And uh, just played some mini golf around there, but it was it was great, and I, oh, I right. can't wait to get back. Cool. I'll come up to Anchorage and we'll go skiing. Yeah, sounds great, Joe. Um, so just looking over some of your blog posts on your website, uh, you discuss a couple close calls that you've had with concerning avalanches. Um yeah. While guiding, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to share any of those with us. Um, something that we oh, were talking sure. about before before we really pushed the record button is learning from our lessons and learning from close calls and how, how to turn a close call into a positive learning experience. And I know you've been doing some digging and some reading lately on, on effective ways to do that. So I was hoping you could maybe share share a story with us. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, the post I have on my website was, uh, learning from close calls and there's been a lot of discussion on, uh, close calls and, um, talking openly about mistakes. Like if you get an avalanche to call the local avalanche center or send them a observation so you can share what you learned to the other people. And that's, kind of what I was trying to do here. That's a lot of, um, like Utah Avalanche Center's done a great job at promoting open discussion of close calls. But 
So I took on uh, three close calls I had um, in a couple years. Um, all three of them were were with clients, and because that's I'm mostly out in the backcountry with clients. Um, like one of them was in the Alaska Range, and I do a lot of ski trips in the Alaska Range, flying for a week and camp out with clients and ski all around. Amazing terrain and beautiful sights and deep, stable, more stable snowpack. But this one was to uh, the Coffee Glacier. And I'd been there on a ski trip with clients the week before, so I was real familiar with the snowpack. But when we left that week before, it was storming really hard. And when we got back, it was, you know, um, mostly stable. And we skied for a couple of days. And then, like, the third day, it heated up. It was starting to get a little bit warmer. And we came down to this moraine headwall, real low-angle terrain, down to this moraine headwall. And we're standing at the moraine headwall and, and looking over the edge on the, the slope of the moraine. It just looked like a beautiful slope. Like, uh, really like to ski it. And, and I'd stood there the week before and hadn't skied it, but we were there again. And like a third client came up next to me and then the whole moraine ripped out below us. So that was, um, you know, interesting close call there. And so some of the lessons I could learn from that was, um, being mindful of these uh, changing conditions where, mm-hmm. you know, the previous two days we'd been out skiing and conditions were normal, normal, you know, stable, everything seemed good. We're taking it easy. We're going on low angle terrain using terrain progression, but then all of a sudden it warms up and then it's not normal. So it's a tricky situation when you become complacent with the uh, normal conditions so it's like how you deal with that, how you stay in tune with conditions when it's just like you kind of let your guard down. So one thing I liked in reading from that was um, uh, Todd Gunn's article from the 2016 ISSW, and he was describing using the phrase, what am I missing out here? What am I missing? What am I not seeing? So it's trying to always ask that question of like, trying to find the the part that you're missing. And I've also found that a good question to use in avalanche education um, or amongst your group is just saying, what are we missing? And it kind of really gets the quiet person to speak up, the person that is seeing something but just not talking. So that's a really great phrase to stay in tune with the conditions, just say, what am I missing? Yeah, something along the same lines that I – ask myself a lot of times is, or tell myself is you got to know what you don't know. Right. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. You got to know what you don't know. But yeah. What am I that's missing? And, and being in tune with the changing conditions is huge, especially, yeah, I can see how, you know, if you've been in the same zone for, you know, a re- week previous and nothing's really changed yeah. and then, and then you come back and things are seemingly stable, no signs of instability. And then, yeah. And then some, you know, slight changes, temperature increase. Um, and that's, yeah. that's all it took, right? Yeah, that's all, that's all, I mean, that's all it took that I noticed. It was just, but there were things that I should have been more in tune with. It's like, you know, when the snow was becoming kind of moist for the first time, like you drag your ski pole in the snow instead of it just being powder around your basket, it's like actually lumping up and dragging so the snow is becoming wet for the first time or when things come up, when snow comes off the cliff, it's not like powdery puffs of spin drift. It's actually lumpy snow for the first time. And it just seems when the snow gets wet for the first time, it starts creeping and gliding down the slope more, putting more stress on the weak layer and more chances of avalanches. So when it's heating up, stay off of, uh, even when it's heating up for the first time, stay off of those, uh, Deep avalanche slopes. Yeah, and I think it's part of human nature. You know, we don't want the snow conditions to deteriorate, and and so maybe we just try and yeah, um, you know, ah, that's not happening. You know, it's still good skiing. Yeah, <laughs> and so you know, maybe I know for me sometimes I get focused on the skiing, um, ski quality yeah. over over what's actually going on in the snowpack. Um, get kind of yeah, blinded that's, by that's that. True. Yeah, it is. It's a, a tricky situation when you're, 
you're having so much fun out there in the snowpack and playing in the powder and it's hard to kind of wrap your head around that things could be changing and you got to back off it's it's difficult right especially when you're out there having so much fun i mean just back in your skiing skiing powder i mean it's like about the most fun thing to do well and it's your livelihood too right you're out there to to show to first and foremost keep your clients safe but also show yeah. them a great time and so there's there's another aspect of of client expectations and and i'm sure you're you're well aware of having to live up to those expectations and and produce right yeah that's true that's true yeah that is a whole another realm there is managing those client expectations because you know we i mean definitely it's a problem that i've dealt with myself is you want to please your clients and i've just be i've had to rethink my guiding several times where it's just like i get so obsessed about pleasing clients i want every client to say that was the i want them to say that was the best day of skiing my whole life and i, I just realized well that's not my job just like you said my job is safety mm-hmm. and, and second is kind of second or third is making them happy right so it's like i gotta you know focus about the safety and think that first so how what are do you have any strategies how do you do that when when conditions aren't conducive to giving giving them the best ski experience yeah that's a yeah that's a really good question managing uh the client expectations which i'm sure you deal with a lot and the more we guide we all have different tactics we use, but um, I think a lot of it comes from front-loading the communication because when clients, like like this week, for example, I've been in touch with a lot of clients as they're booking for trips, for week-long trips in Alaska. So even as like even with the first email, I'm saying it's like, well, you got to be flexible because it really depends on the snowpack and conditions. And then I send a send them a paper trip proposal and in there it's like multiple places it says you have to be flexible plans will not go um as we've talked about plans will be changed and if you're not flexible i suggest not coming because um we will you know our first choice place may be to go to Turningham Pass, but let's say it's a raging storm at Turningham Pass you can't ski in a raging storm at Turningham Pass so well, we may have to drive up north to Hatcher Pass or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's front-loading that communication in the emails, the pre-trip letter, the discussions on the phone, the pre-trip meeting, talking to them again. That you know, it's like you said, that safety is first, and I'm not going to be pressured into um, skiing something I don't feel comfortable with. So safety's first, and and we're going to um, plan our trip accordingly. Right. Do you have um, any other, uh, what other techniques do you have for uh, managing the client expectations or any favorite techniques? Well, I, th- I think kind of to tag on what you were talking about, communication and and from the beginning, but to continue uh-huh. that into the field. And ultimately, you're as a guide, you're going to make the decision of what you're going to ski. But allowing right. them to have a glimpse into why you're making those decisions I think I think they they feel like um, they're bought in a little bit more to the yeah. to that decision making process. Um, right, that's that's good. Yeah, but but it's that's tough really sometimes. Yeah, really like you that. know, it's uh, depending oh, sorry, on it's it's tough depending on the on the guest. You know, um, to yeah. Do that. Right, yeah, definitely, especially with the heli ski guests. Those are a little bit higher expectations there. Yeah, they can be, but yeah, you know, and then there's the whole weather factor. I'm sure you deal with this mm-hmm. flying into glaciers and stuff, and and you might not be able yeah. to fly in for days or weeks even, or get picked yeah. up. Yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I really like this idea of uh, making decisions with clients. I mean, of course, when it ultimately comes to the the guides, the guide is going to make the decision. But I like to, if I'm wondering, or if it doesn't matter exactly which way i just kind of put it out there and let the client decide and in some way you know will they become involved with the decision and then 
some of the pressure is off of you. You know, if you go one direction and it backfires, then it's kind of, I mean, if it doesn't work out, then it's like, well, it's <laughs> your ass isn't on the line. It's more, uh, you know, it's, they're kind of involved with it. So it, they feel they a little more empowered. More, yeah. They feel more empowered. Yeah. They really like it. Or if we're up there skiing a run and the climb looks across the valley and says, maybe we should ski over there. Look at that. And so if they say that, I really tune into something like that. It's like, okay, yeah, well, that, that oh, looks like it'll work. Let's go do that. Let's go over and check it out. Yeah. Because, yeah, it really does empower the client when when you're listening to them and making decisions using their input. Well, most of these folks like getting after it. You know, they're not just um, – maybe they're desk jockeys in, in their 9-to-5 world, but they enjoy being out there, and, and that gives them some, some more – decision-making skills, especially if you debrief yeah. uh, experience like that, like that gives them some valuable skills as they further their right. personal objectives when skiing. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it totally adds to their experience. And I think, you know, the American, the American clients like to be, you know, working with their guide and being part of the group. They just, they're not like, um, they don't like just following um, head to tail up the slope after their guide that like being involved with it. Yeah, it's more of a team mentality. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Joe, another blog post that I really like on your website, you talk about managing uncertainty in Avalanche Train. Um and I was hoping you could delve into some of your thoughts on, on that. I and mean, when I think about what you do and you're flying into a a zone maybe for a week or longer uh-huh. in, in Alaska, you know, you don't have the maybe as much readily available information and other observations uh, concerning snowpack weather um, that we do in the lower 48. You know, a lot of places here we can dial up observations from local avalanche centers um, or Mountain Hub, for example. And we can find right. very relevant observations over the last two weeks, few days, or the whole season. Um, and so with the amount of terrain that you generally deal with in Alaska and maybe uh, lack of observations just due to enormity of terrain, uh, what are some ways? Yeah. I mean, there's a huge amount of uncertainty out there. So uh, how do you go about dealing with that while you're guiding? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Yeah, I think uh yeah, Alaska is uh, a little bit different in the avalanche world is in that you're going out to these areas with almost no information. I mean, you do have some information from uh like the the snow telemetry stations about and you, that have the snowpack information, snow depth information, but you also have some information from pilots and maybe some other people have been out there, but I mean, compared to a lot of places in the lower 48 or even right around Anchorage, you have very little information, for example, like flying out to the Neocola Mountains or the Tordrilla Mountains. You're kind of going out there and seeing what you find. And so one of the main things is with going to a place with no information is um, starting small and working your way up to bigger terrain if the conditions allow. So, we call that terrain progression and it's um, like flying in. Even if everything seems good when we fly in, we still start on small slopes, like low angle slopes, staying off of avalanche terrain for maybe like one or two days and collecting information. The more data you have, the more you can reduce your uncertainty. So we're uh, staying off the avalanche terrain, looking around for red flags, digging some, snow pits to see how the weak layers are and if everything lines up then we can go into steeper terrain we've uh, reduced our uncertainty so that's uh, one technique the terrain progression um uh another technique with uh uncertainty that i use for myself is when i'm like touring along and i find myself wondering i'm like kind of doubting what's going on and i'm wondering too much it's like just myself wondering kind of is an alarm that goes off that says, okay, time to back off. You're wondering too much. That means there's too much uncertainty. You got to back off a little bit. 
So that's that's another technique that I like to use. And, so, that, and that can be of, that can kind of be boiled down to just listening to your intuition, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, just listening to your intuition. Yeah, that's it. And the way that I've found that I can tune into my intuition is just like, oh, I'm wondering too much. I'm thinking too much about this. That means I got to back off. I got my intuition is telling me I should back off. So, trying to tune into that more. And you know, and with clients, it's you know, I just say it to clients. You know, get used to saying to clients or my partners that it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what's going on here. I don't. I'm not, I'm not sure about the snowpack. Why don't we uh, go to this lower angle terrain? And and I say that to clients. Hmm, I'm I'm wondering too much about the snowpack. I don't really understand what's going on. I think we should go to lower angle terrain. And they they always understand that. It's like they really clue in and, and appreciate that talk. How do you uh, do? You have techniques for uh, listening to your intuition? Well, I, um, yeah, it's a good question you're turning around on me joe here i'm not prepared no. <laughs> yeah, <'cause> I'm, <laughs> hey i'm interviewing you <laughs> I'm just kidding. um well i think uh using terrain as margins is huge because we can't we can't control right. the weather we can't tr- control the snowpack but we can control the terrain so i like you know basically what you're saying about terrain progression um just utilizing that terrain as margins and even on a micro scale on a slope scale um you know giving your clients clear instructions and setting a Uh ski track um and having clear expectations that i do not want you to cross to the left of my ski track and maybe it's okay if like from an avalanche standpoint maybe it's okay if they cross the ski track you know 50 feet but it's not 100 feet and and therefore i didn't oh, put yeah. my ski track 50 feet to to the left so i've created uh-huh. a buffer um in case somebody makes a big turn over my ski track oh um, yeah right that that's kind of there so when i'm uncertain about about the snowpack i just really hedge my bets on on terrain um, yeah, that, that's a good point there. Yeah, keeping the extra buffer in, especially with clients, because they may wander and they don't see terrain the same way you do. So it's it's leaving an extra buffer with clients. I was talking with uh, Henry Munter about uncertainty. Henry Munter is the he's the head honcho there at Two Guts Powder Guides. Yep. And he was he's been kind of he's been interested in what he calls terrain uncertainty. Mm. He says even terrain is not certain. So it's like the example that pops to mind is like where after you ski a big slope, like where do you stop? Where is it okay to stop? Right. I mean, it's like, well, how far away do you, from that slope do you need to be? And a lot of the terrain that all of us ski is you, you can't get beyond the runout of the biggest avalanche possible. And you don't even, it's hard for us to even imagine what that biggest avalanche is. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of uncertainty. So the way I've kind of taken Henry's terrain uncertainty is just like ski farther away from the slope um, than you think. It's like when you come down the slope, it's tempting to stop, but then just keep on skiing up the flats. Yeah, you might when you might not want to have a as long of a skin back up for a second lap or something, but um, right, you know that could be very important to to get out of harm's way yeah that's true because it kind of goes to one of those things that you mentioned about these high risk low low frequency events those big uh the monster avalanches that we don't really get to see much but those are the ones that can get you and those ones that the avalanches that run way farther than you think and we just haven't seen them that big so it's hard for us to imagine them going that big so it's like, well, just to account, uh, account for the worst case scenario, I should probably just ski further away from the slope than I think. Sure. So maybe we need to, you know, especially talking about these low frequency, high risk events, like a deep slab avalanche, um, maybe we need to start training training our mind to kind of calibrate about about what that would look like, you know. And and look at case studies and right. close calls from some of these avalanches and 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 start 
imagining what that would look like in the terrain when we're on the top of the yeah. ski slope. Right. Yeah, that's true. I was just listening to uh, your interview with Roger Strong this morning and, you know, him talking about he's skiing that slope. He'd been on like 250 times or something, and it still went way bigger than anything he'd seen. And it's just those uh, high, high risk, low frequency events are, they're they're hard to wrap our heads around. Yeah, but I th- I mean those are those are the ones that are gonna unfortunately kill you or kill a partner or kill a client. Um, yeah, you know every avalanche has consequences, but those are the ones that keep me up at night for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have the real bad the real bad uh, outcome. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you seen the uh, Gordon Graham's video on high? high risk low frequency events in the fire service i have watched it yeah it's really good yeah and there's a there's a link to it on your on your website that i would suggest all of all of our listeners go check out um yeah i've been really obsessed about that website it's or about um sorry about gordon graham's um video there because he really nails it on the head when you translate it over to avalanche world and he talks about the two different types of high frequency or sorry, high risk, low frequency events. There's like one high risk, low frequency event where you have time to think. And the other one, when you have no time to think. So if it's like uh, an event where you have time to think, he says, just slow down. Mm. He goes, uh, says, slow down. So there it's like, well, we're on the ridge and it's a, a deep slab avalanche problem and we're on the ridge and we have time to think we're all together. We can communicate. Let's just slow down and analyze our decision-making here and try to do some rational decision-making um, weighing the pros and cons. But then there's the other high risk, low frequency events when we have no time to think. And that's like when we have an avalanche burial and when we have no time to think, we have to prepare for those situations through training. So that's why we practice avalanche companion rescue throughout the winter. So we have to be trained up so we know what to do when we have no time to think. So it's just kind of impulsive. Right. And you, I mean, I guess you could say that if you end up in an event like that, which which it happens and it will continue to happen, but maybe uh-huh. we missed a step by not taking it as slow as we could have before or that's true yeah or we've missed some clues you know maybe we knew it was a a deep slab avalanche problem but um we underestimated the terrain you know piece of micro terrain that's connected to a bigger piece you know um right but i really like i i like what you're saying about slowing down and and in those situations it's all in our control until it's not. I think that's yeah. really what you're getting at. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And yeah, that's a real good way of putting it. I like, yeah, this whole thing with slowing down, I've been hearing more and more about it. And um, I think uh, Don Sheriff said it during our, our pro course that we were at together last year about you know, one of the biggest things he says is just slow down. When you have time to think, slow down. Um it's just because like everything is in such a rush and with more people around, we're kind of rushing more and, and it kind of compromises our good decisions. Yeah. Maybe it's powder fever, all sorts of human, human biases, you know? Um, yeah, that's true. And just coming off of the heels of a pretty busy wildland fire season, you know, I, I tell guys on my crew that all the time, especially if we're conducting a, a vital burning operation, um, you know, we can control this tempo. There's times when we can't. We're chasing spots left and right, uh-huh. and you know, you know, things are going gunny. But when when it's very vital, we can control the tempo, and that's totally within oh, our control. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some good correlations there. That's kind of getting oh, yeah, off a, off topic, but that's a really good. No, that no, I think that's the, the whole fire service thing. That is, I mean, fire, wildland firefighting. That's it seems like a lot of uh, directly applicable stuff to avalanche world. There is, yeah. I mean, it's all about fuels, weather, and topography, and fire. 
that's what drives the fire in in the avalanche yeah. world. It's um, terrain, weather, and snowpack. It's pretty much the same. Yeah, that's true. And you can there's times when you can have time to uh, think, and other times when you have no time to think. Yeah. And like you guys probably do a lot of practice, and you can often slow down and make. Uh, slow to group decisions another time where you just got to go and run off intuition that's been built through um, lots of practice yeah absolutely so Joe yeah, um, interesting. You, we were talking a little bit earlier about I call it the culture of shame and oh yeah learning from you know you talk about in your blog about how um you know, the best gift you can get is a, is a close call and everyone's okay. Yeah. Larry Goldie quote there. Yeah. Right. So I was wondering if you could just give us your thoughts on, um, what's going on with the culture of shame. You know, something happens in the back country and nobody gets hurt. Um, but you know, the next day on the internet, there's, you know, hundreds of comments about, how that person made the wrong decision or they're in the wrong place. You know, everybody's a Monday morning quarterback. It seems like after a, after a close call and right. One of my goals with this podcast is to share these stories of these close calls and turning, turn them into learning opportunities for everybody. Um, and, and not passing judgment on, on a bad or what people think of as a bad decision. Um, yeah. So I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Well, uh, I'm, I'm thinking I really like your thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like your, uh, I really like your logo, creating a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people of a curious fascination with avalanches. It's like, sign me up for that. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, reducing that culture of shame. I totally know what you're talking about, and I um, think about that a lot and i think that's kind of been the the trend amongst like these um these blogs i've been doing recently the blogs are kind of reflecting my current interest in avalanching avalanches with like the blog on turning around the blog on uh close calls the blog blog on uncertainty um another one i'm working on now is learning from learning from your mistakes and i think it's you know, I'm thinking kind of like you are that I want to make it easy and acceptable for everybody to talk about um, about what's really going on out there in the avalanche world that you that you don't really know what's going on a lot, so you have to back off. And we also make mistakes, and and it's just the way it goes. We all make mistakes. Like I, whenever I go out back under skiing, I probably can count like you know at least at least 10 obvious mistakes I've made and there's countless more I make each day that I've gotten away with. So, um, I think, I think, uh, trying to figure out a way to make it acceptable and normal and the right thing to do to talk about your mistakes and talk about your close calls. And, and so people aren't Monday morning quarterbacking at you like that. Or how, or so you don't even have the fear of them doing that. Right. Uh, another thing I've been thinking about lately is just celebrating good decision making or celebrating saying no, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, we never, I think in our culture, a lot of times if, if we turn back from something, it's like we see it as a failure. Either we haven't right. met the client expectations or we haven't met our own personal objective and you uh-huh. know, we see that as a failure, but I think we should start seeing that as a success, you know, whether, yeah, that's whether we could have gotten away with it or not, you know? Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah. Cause it's the reality is for us, um, skiers are, uh, is that skiing, uh, uh, committing big, hard line that's like what we live for. We love doing that. Or skiing and avalanche terrain. We just love doing that. That's the easy part. Mm-hmm. So it's actually what is uh, uh, the hard thing to do is backing off. So it's almost like making, 
turning around or backing off the goal. Right. Because that's the hard part. Yeah. And making it like, uh, and for uh, a couple years there, and that's what I was actually working on. I was like, I was having so many successes in the road that I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm heading towards an accident here. I got to, I got to start backing off more. So I started trying to, trying to back off, you know, and just counting up my times I've turned around. And instead of counting the runs I was doing, counting the times I turned around as successes. Right. Certainly, those are more difficult. They certainly are, and it's certainly a balance that I'm I'm figuring out. It's a it's a lifelong goal to find that balance, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's true. And so, yeah, the lifelong goal because yeah, we want to keep on doing this till we're till we're uh, into our eighties, right? And, and to not get an avalanche, that's what we have to do. We have to work at it and work at things like turning around it takes work it's hard work and the other uh the other topic that i'm interested in now is um learning from our mistakes i just read uh jonah lair's book how we decide and it's uh currently my favorite book on decision making because uh, it's readable and it has a lot of good stuff that's directly applicable to avalanche terrain and, and there he says the way you train your intuition is by examining your your mistakes and that's like right from the aviation world where they go into the, the flight simulator and they do all the practice stuff and they come out of the simulator and then they analyze their mistakes so we can do that out back into skiing like we go out for a, um, a day of skiing we ski maybe three runs and then you can analyze and talk about your mistakes that you made all day. And, and that's the way you can prevent yourself from uh, making those mistakes again. Uh, so what I'm working on right now is, is this blog from a ski trip, a personal ski trip that we did last spring out to Prince William Sound. And it was like one of these incredible trips where we had perfect conditions, perfect weather, perfect group. And we skied just like, endless number of steep powder filled shoots, a lot of corn on the south facing slopes. You know, in a lot of ways you could look at it like that was the perfect trip. I just nailed it. But if I broke down each run, it's like, well, I made a lot of mistakes. Mm. A lot of mistakes each run. And so when I'm looking at five different runs during that trip and going through all the mistakes I made on every run and just putting it out there. So it's like you know, I could look at it like, wow, that was a great shoot. We skied probably first ascent and it was steep and it was powdery and we were, you know, I got great photos and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not going to learn anything from that. The way I'm going to learn is if I look at the mistakes, like, like, for example, the first run, it's like I completely bombed the first run. I mean, if you look at it just from afar, it was like a steep powder filled shoot and it was great, but you know, that was the first run. I shouldn't have, I should have applied to reading progression. I should have started low angle. Uh, we didn't dig a pit. Um, one of the people in our group said we should dig a pit and we didn't dig one. So there were two more mistakes right there. And some of the people or one of the people in our group wasn't as confident on that steep of a slope. So we really should have gone somewhere else. So, or I should have gone somewhere else. You know, I should have tuned in more. I was just in like such a frenzy to be out there, finally out there skiing that I was like not tuning into the real situation. So I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, there were some other runs on that trip where I felt like I I did quite well. But even those, it's like one, one run I gave myself a, a 90% uh, on the self-critique rating. And... And I didn't give myself 100% because I'm sure I made mistakes. I just can't really think of them right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the unknown unknowns there. So it's it, kind of looking at those runs and trying to figure out what the mistakes you are, <laughs> thinking about those mistakes so you won't make them in the future, and that allows you to train your intuition better for the future. And this all comes right from that book, uh, How We Decide by Jim Allaire. What was his, what's the author's name again? Uh, Jonah 
Lehrer. Okay. L E H R E R. Okay. And he's not like it's not like uh, Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. Yeah, um, I can't get through like, that one. <laughs> neither can I. Yeah, I've been trying. I've been trying. I gave up. <laughs> My uh, buddy Henry, she uh, got spider guards. He uh, he read it twice, and I can't even get through it once. So I kind of just use it as a reference book. But this book, uh, how we decide, it's like okay, I can actually read this one. Right. It's great. Cool. I'll have to check that out. Thanks for the recommendation, yeah, Joe. Yeah, it's really, really good. Is that some? So is, I like that what you said about giving yourself a grade on decision making. Is that something that you do frequently? No, I just started doing it this spring, and it's all kind of. I'm just kind of thinking about it more and more. Like I actually, the first time I used it was, uh, oh, on a trip last. Spring, I had a bunch of military guys. We went into the Alaska Range and we flew out a day early because of a storm, approaching storm, and we went skiing in the front range above Anchorage. And it was May, so we were kind of skiing in the gullies a bit. And we just uh, headed up to the top of this peak to ski this north facing gully. And it was mushy snow and it was too shallow and it started sloughing out. and I got about 100 feet down it, and I was like, whoops, this is the wrong place to be. And we all booted out of it and walked back down the ridge to a lower angle thing. And so from that run, I remember, like, talking with the military guys, being like, you know, I think I gave myself a, a 40% on that on that, um, on that that previous attempt, mm-hmm. on that attempt off that summit. Because I did a couple things right, but I just made a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I just talked about it with them. It was pretty cool talking about it with the military guys because they're pretty open about a lot of that stuff. Yeah, they, I mean it's pretty ingrained in in that sort of culture to debrief your actions, right? <clears throat> right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's really it's, it's the debrief is what it's what we're talking about here, and um, like you do at Ruby uh, Ruby Mountain Heli Ski, and what we teach in level one avalanche classes is the the debrief Mm -hmm. but you know it's like i'm really realizing the importance of the debrief it's it's how we learn it's how we get better and it's like you know there's the part we can discuss as a big group but then but then really also thinking about it in your own head like after each run not like what you did right but what you did wrong and what mistakes you made and how you can do better the next time yeah, and that's a. I think that's an important way to try and cultivate intuition too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's how we're going to train our intuition because the in- intuition can steer us wrong in avalanche terrain. Where you know my intuition often says ski that powder slope because it's going to feel really good, but that's not always the right intuition you want to be listening to. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> well, Joe. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you this afternoon. I'm I'm glad we were able to connect and um, yeah, it's been great talking with you too, Caleb. Yeah, I think you it was it was awesome discussing, you know, turning close calls into positive learning experiences and managing uncertainty and trying to manage for um, low frequency, high risk events and. I think there's there's a lot of good information in here yeah and yeah it's inter- interesting topics and there's it's kind of this whole avalanche psychology stuff as it seems infinite to me it, um and probably to most of us because we've kind of spent a lot of time out there in the and you know initially learning about snowpack and snow and avalanches but then it's like well then you realize all this stuff inside your head is almost more infinite than than the snowpack right Absolutely. How to train ourselves to make good decisions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully make good decisions. Right. Well, uh, I know you're on a road trip and you're down down in Moab right now, and so I wish you the best with the rest of your road trip and climbing oh, down there. You. And, and uh, I'm excited to tie in with you at some point and do some more skiing with you. Yeah, yeah, we got to do that. Yeah, definitely come up to Alaska and we'll ski together in South Central or, yeah, hopefully we can cross paths again soon. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for your time, Joe, and, and thanks for being on the show.
Oh, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure and an honor. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Wow, Joe. Uh, That was great to chat with you about our common lifelong goal of trying to understand and implement better decision making while utilizing our intuition, experience, training, and patience. In an email following this interview, Joe shared with me the idea of cultivating a culture of understanding as a way to learn from other people's near misses or accidents. Taking the ego out of our experiences with backcountry terrain is vital to better communication and decision making. I spoke earlier about an email that went out to all members of the American Avalanche Association last week. It notified all members that Ari would not be participating in the AAA Pro Training Program this season. And as a result, the AAA would not recognize any professional courses taught by Ari. The effect of this would result in any students taking part in an Ari Pro course this season not obtaining a Pro 1 or Pro 2 certificate as part of the AAA Pro Training Program. This affects all professionals trying to further their education and hopefully is just an 11th hour knee-jerk reaction to the long and tedious process that I'm sure has been involved in creating the professional training program. A tactical pause was taken by all and folks from all parties came to the table on Friday, October 20th. Hearing these thoughts from Aries Executive Director Richard Bothwell made me sleep easy. Truth, the real message is that everyone involved is committed to the program and we're all moving forward. ARI and the AAA, as well as a handful of other groups, are continuing to work together on this pro program. And you know, yesterday we all attended a, an in-person meeting in Golden, Colorado that has been, you know, been on the books and scheduled for geez, at least a month. So this is just a regularly scheduled meeting where attended by Aerie was there and the AAA was there and AAI and the National Avalanche School and Silverton Avalanche School, the Alaska Avalanche School, and the Colorado Mountain College. So so basically all the players in the in this pro program yeah, were present and together in one room yesterday and had a a really productive and successful meeting. Uh, and it's clear that we're all committed to making sure this program successfully meets its objectives. So we're all excited about that. And, and we're all excited to, to focus on what we all do best, which is, and, and what we want to be doing, which is to deliver high quality avalanche education. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is even, I mean, the reason I'm in in Colorado right now is for just that, for high quality avalanche education. I'm here to attend the National Avalanche School, which is which is something that I have never been exposed to. So I thought it would be a great way to to gain exposure to a different style of avalanche education, and and I'm looking forward to that and to the the CPD or continuing professional development that that attend in the NAS will be. So, so things are, 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 are moving forward and, and everyone, everyone involved is together at the same table helping to move everything forward. Thanks for listening. I'm super excited for the second season of the show. Email us your feedback at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you don't know how to do that, ask your nearest millennial.
We are now on Stitcher for all you Androidites. Rate and review us on iTunes. Really, please do that. It helps. Help support the show by buying some swag in our online store. Found at www.theavalanchehour.com I'd like to recognize the support of TAS, Gazex, and Black Diamond. Couldn't do it without ya. The music you heard on this episode was provided by Audio Binger, Poddington Bear, and Bayou. Courtesy of freemusicarchive.com, created possible by the Creative Commons license. Our artwork was created by the talented Mike T. Until next time, make good decisions, be safe, and keep having fun.